Hey, this week on All Business, I want to talk golf, not just because it's the summer, but because it's still one of the biggest sports in the world. And we're going to be talking with Paul Levy, the president of PGA America. We're going to find out the difference between PGA America and PGA Tour. But more than that, we're finding out about what's the real news and what's not the fake news. You keep hearing about golf going down, but it's not going down. It's going up. And that's one of the big things. But Courses are closing all over the place, and we're going to talk about some of the recent controversies that are coming up around, hey, should you be able to watch a tournament, see something happen, call it in, and change the game? That's what we're going to get to right here, because we're talking all business with Jeffrey Hazlett. From Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hey, Paul, first question I have to ask, Now I kind of know the difference, but a lot of people don't know when they hear PGA, they hear PGA America, they hear PGA Tour. What's the difference between the two? Well, it's a great question, Jeffrey. You know, the PGA of America and the PGA Tour were actually one and the same organization going back to the creation of, of the PGA of America. And then back in the 1960s, uh, Dean Beeman, who was one of the players on the tour, uh, some of the players got together, came to the PGA of America, and that's when the split happened. And I think it was 1968 where the PGA Tour became a separate organization from the PGA of America. And the idea was that the business of the two different parts had gotten to where they were different. The tour players were focused on having major championship events, tour events, week in, week out for the players to play. And the PGA of America had this, you know, thousands of PGA golf pros who were running, growing the game, running golf facilities, uh, you know, promoting the game of golf all over the country. So uh, as we move forward to today, the PGA of America with 28,000 PGA professionals are the people who every day are running the golf course, your local country club, your local public golf course, they, the golf professional who teaches at a, at a teaching facility. Uh, there are people who own and manage golf courses sometimes. There are people who have created their own management companies, and they're the leaders in the business and game of golf. And that's the association that I'm an officer of. The PGA Tour is what you see every week, week in, week out on television, where they are playing the professional tour uh, whether it be the New Orleans Open, they just had the Zurich event, which for this year for the first time was a team event, or the Greensboro uh, Classic, or whatever event might be, the Arnold Palmer's event in Bay Hill. Now, the PGA Championship and the Ryder Cup, those two events are actually owned and operated by the PGA of America, just like the U.S. Open's run by the USGA, the Masters by Augusta, Augusta National, and the Open, the British Open, by the Royal and Ancient. So other than those events, the events you see on the PGA Tour calendar are run by the PGA Tour. So it's a it's something where people don't often realize it's two different associations, but we both work very closely together to help each other and to grow the game, and uh, I think we both serve a great role for each other's organizations. 
Yeah, I think, you know, the best way, you know, former being a former chief marketing officer, I used to sponsor on the tour, but I also did a lot of things with PGA America back in 2008. Even before we got on here, we were talking about Oak Hill in Rochester, New York, and um, helped sponsor the senior senior tour back in 2008. That's during that time. But I also did a lot with uh, the PGA Tour. We did the Kodak Challenge which I thought was one of the most innovative things. And I wish Kodak had kept that going. Somebody should, because that was just a hot little piece. But nonetheless, so America, PGA of America and PGA Tour, you would say are mutually exclusive, but mutually inclusive of each other because they're working together for the game of golf, right? Except for we have several members that are members of both associations. So Mm -hmm. don't forget that Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus, Phil Mickelson, Jimmy Walker, uh, Patrick Reed are all members of the PGA Tour, and they're members of the PGA of America. See now, now you're just name dropping. Now that's what well, you're and, doing. And I'm, and I'm using that <laughs> to basically give the visual for our radio listeners that it is anyone who plays on the PGA Tour is also a PGA of America member, but not yeah. necessarily vice versa. Exactly. Exactly. Is it every pro golfer, a local club's dream to be on the PGA Tour? Well, I wouldn't think so. I mean, I would think they're there to educate, play the game of golf every day. I I think you've got to look at it. It's kind of like anything. There are all kinds of different things that people aspire to be. Uh, You know, some people grew up playing high school football, maybe thinking that, no, they're never going to be in the NFL, but they want to be a coach. Yeah. And they decide. And, you know, some of the greatest coaches were people. You know, I look at my my team as the New Orleans Saints. And uh, if you look at the Saints coach, you know, he's done a great job. Oh. Uh, but he was a court, he was a quarterback, I think, at Southern Illinois. You know, here's a, here's someone who really aspired to be a coach. So I think if you look at golf, we have people who aspire to play the tour, people who aspire to teach the game for a living, people who aspire to be a golf professional at a private club where you get to teach the game and grow the game and serve the members. Because a lot of our professionals, they're there to serve the members of their club or the patrons that play at their golf facility. So what precipitated this getting together and talking about golf? There's lots more I want to talk about it, but I do want to talk a little bit about what happened was I got a call from somebody talking about a new course that's open, which when you look at courses and versus new courses versus old courses, I think if anyone knows anything about the business, there's 10 times many more close, uh, courses that are closed than opened. Now, part of that's just due to economics, not so much about the game, but economics of the land. A lot of these courses are in some of the most prime real estate there are in the world. I mean, I have good friends who own KOA campgrounds who became millionaires because they were on the outskirts of town. And now Walmart's buying up their property and putting up a Walmart somewhere. And uh, because now they're in the center of town. So I think that's been part of it. But there's not a lot of new courses that are opening up. But yet there was a new course that was opened up uh, outside of New Orleans. And that became a big thing. So that's kind of where we got started. Now, you're a New Orleans guy, right? I am born and raised, uh, grew up there playing golf at City Park, the public golf course. When I was a kid, we had uh, 81 holes of golf. And actually, my first year of college, I had a scholarship to a, uh, a school in Texas, transferred back to LSU because I missed home, graduated from LSU in 1983, and still uh, New Orleans will always be my home. Yeah. So talk to me about this new course. The new golf course, of course, is... Uh, Bayou Oaks at City Park, which was a re, how do I put it, kind of like the Eastlake model, where they basically went in and rebuilt uh, an old public golf course, although what made this one so unique is 
it was shut down during Katrina. The whole area mm-hmm. flooded immensely. I mean, it was one of those, it was the hardest hit area of New Orleans where, where the oh, floodwaters yeah. were. And yeah. so at that time, I think they were down the 54 holes because of supply and demand or other, uh, whether it be other uses for that land inside the park. You know, it's one of the largest parks. City Park is one of the largest parks in a metropolitan area uh, in the country. It's actually owned by the state of Louisiana. And so all three golf courses were flooded out. They actually opened the north course some years ago, uh, many years after Katrina. But even before Katrina happened, there was a group of people in New Orleans, uh, two of the key players, a guy named Mike Rodrigue, who has the Acme Oyster Bars, and then a guy named Jerry Barus, who I played high school golf with, who were very passionate in trying to take the Eastlake model where you redevelop not just the golf course, but the area around it, the, the housing, the, uh, you know, everything that's uh, part of that neighborhood and raise the funds to make the golf course this championship golf course where it could host a PGA Tour event and be as good as any golf course around. So that was in the works before Katrina. Uh, of course, fast forward to Katrina in 2005, and now 12 years later, there was a lot of perseverance on Mike and Jerry and in, with the help of a lot of people in the city of New Orleans to get to where that golf course was christened or uh, opened on April 21st, uh, Reese Jones Golf Course, uh, which is known as Bayou Oaks at City Park now. So uh, it took a long time to make that happen. A lot of dedication, a lot of red tape, a lot of getting through the FEMA situation. And I think when it's all said and done, I really just commend the people who stuck to it and said, hey, we have a vision for not just rebuilding the golf course, but they totally rebuilt the whole park. I mean, I, I drove through it two weeks ago and could see when I was a kid the places where you'd rent the boats and, uh, you know, the places where uh, there's actually a school in the park, a high school that I had some friends go to. And you can tell they've spent a lot of money in the city of New Orleans and, of course, the state of Louisiana and the parks district to make this place a special place again. I want to come back to this. I need to take a quick break, and I want to talk about my friends at uh, Duncan Coffee. I think everything, uh, you know, even when I get started in the morning, when I go and play around a golf from time to time, it's uh, I started off with a good cup of coffee, and I don't think I'm alone in that belief. My friends over at Duncan sell more than 30 cups of coffee every single second. So America is definitely running on Duncan, and so is all business with Jeffrey Hayes. Let's swing by your local Duncan today for a sweet treat and a cup of joe. So let me ask you, uh, uh, Paul, are you, are you a coffee drinker? I am. I'd like to have a little coffee now and then. I don't know about uh, good old New Orleans chicory, but I do like a good, strong cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, you got you to gotta really like – everybody always gets a uh, bag of that when they're down in New Orleans. I was just in New Orleans. And, and actually, I, I'm thinking back, and I forgot that I actually organized a tournament back, I'd say, about almost 25 years ago at Columbia Park's uh, – area there as as well and then i i actually played it is there a course that's called turning turning point outside of new orleans i don't know um i played at a really nice course outside of new orleans one time i gotta tell you this story and i'm terrible at golf i know you're good at it but i i enjoy it i played this weekend i played a couple of rounds this weekend with some ceos because that's what you do in business and when i was telling them the story i was playing down outside of new orleans and we had to hire a four caddy which for those of you who don't know you have to have somebody there to take care of you, walks along with you and takes care of your clubs. It costs you usually an extra 100, 150 bucks. And he helps you with your 
your club selection. And I remember I'm a really bad golfer. And I remember turning to this guy, his name was Joe. And I said, Joe, what club should I use? And he said, frankly, sir, it just doesn't make a difference. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, you give me crap, man. I'm paying you and you're giving me shit. So it was funny. Anyway. Yeah, there, now there's a place called uh, Pelican Point. I don't know that if that could, was. I could have been, and I can't remember. It was a really great, great course anywhere outside of there. But so, you know, when you look at it, first of all, I got to say to Mike and Jerry, congrats on, on doing a great job. They're great business guys. Uh, by the way, if you haven't eaten an Acme oyster, oh my gosh, it's my favorite oh, place to eat in New Orleans. Unbelievable. Yeah, I love there. I love to go get that shrimp po' boy and uh, a couple of other things. But I, I go there every single time. I might go at 11 o'clock at night when the crowd is down. A little bit, but that's a great place to eat. Man. Well, I can, I can tell you this. If you ever look at, uh, I had uh, someone a while back send me all the bullet points of everything that they persevered through to get this done going back to uh. 2005. I got to believe there were many a night that Jerry and Mike sat at the bar at the o- Acme Oyster, uh, at his restaurant there at the Acme Oyster House, and I guarantee you that they... Uh, they probably had a few of his, uh, a few of his uh, beautiful oysters and a few cold beers, trying to figure out how they were going to get this done. Because they, it's really an amazing task what they developed there and the end result that I saw. Yeah, and do you think this is a signal that maybe there's a signal of a strong economy coming back from New Orleans? Well, I think that this whole project, again, we we're focused on the golf part, but you know, you look at the whole deal; it's not just about golf. Yeah, I think it's an unbelievable statement. Of perseverance for the people in New Orleans. I think it's great that, and you know, again, this is in the city. This is in the city of New Orleans. Uh, You know, there is so much more to do than just play golf. And I think when it's all said and done, anytime you can get a project of this magnitude, and I don't know, I think the golf course, they spent almost 25 million. I really don't know how much they spent on everything. But to get that commitment from the state, to get the city of New Orleans behind it, all the politicians, to get through all the red tape and get it done, I think that's a great sign for the future. Yeah. So when you think back over the history, let's, let's take the decades of when you guys were started and then up through today. I mean, back way back, Apollo 14 member Alan Shepard, astronaut, hit two balls on the lunar surface of the of the moon with a six iron. And it made it only one of two sports to be played on the moon. Why do you think golf is so doggone popular? You know, I, I think a couple reasons, and I think it's kind of one of the reasons that I like golf. One, you can play it all your life. You can play it from early on to as long as you're on this earth. You know, you look at the golf, go to any golf course, you see elderly people still playing and enjoying the game. Also, it's a game that you can play by yourself or with other people. You don't have to have a team. You don't have to have, a, you know, 11 people on a football field. So it's a game that I think people are drawn to because of the fact that uh, it has an individual, uh, individual aspect to it. I think also you're outside. You're out in this beautiful country of ours. Uh, golf courses are some of the most pristine, beautiful places to be, whether it's along an ocean or in the mountains, whatever it may be. And let's not forget that the game of golf is a very social game. You play it by yourself as far as hitting the golf ball yourself, other than when you're playing a tour event like the tour had, uh, excuse me, a team event like the tour had in Zurich this week. But you play with three other people in a foursome normally. So in a four-hour round of golf, if you think about it, you're really only hitting a shot for three or four minutes. You know, you get over the ball and hit it, it takes 10 or 15 seconds. Between walking or riding in a golf cart, going to the next shot, 
a lot of time transpires and you really get to know people. You yeah. get to know what they, you know, what they're about. I mean, if you want to really get the feel for someone's character, if you want to really get a feel for someone as an individual, go play golf with them. Yeah, I think the only other one I get a real true picture of their character is also hunting. I'm a hunter as well. And uh, if I go shooting with someone or hunting with someone or playing golf, I get a real, you know, first of all, I got to trust you a lot if I'm going to give you a gun. But even with a golf club, I got to trust you a lot because it's a, it's a real gentleman's and, and ladies sport in terms of of trust and the rules and, and ethics. And it, it's funny to watch people as you play. Again, I played this weekend um, with a bunch of CEOs and, and two of the of the people that I had played with in our foursome, I didn't know. So we we switch around a lot in the carts so that we get to know each other a little bit more. And we get a lot of at the end of you know, end of the day, we had a great relationship. Two of those people I really did not know. And by the end of the day, we were, you know, not only fist bumping, but hugging each other. And by the following next day, because of that bond that we had, you know, on the course, it gave us an opportunity to open up about some other things. And I think you find that a great deal, don't you, Paul? Oh, very much so. I mean, you you learn about someone from a standpoint of uh, kind of their patience, how they react under pressure. You learn a lot about their integrity. You learn a lot about, uh, you know, if you're going to do a business uh, deal, if you're going to have a business relationship with someone, no better place to find out about them than on a golf course and no better place to consummate a, a business deal than on the golf course. I mean, uh, you know, you look back, not just our current president, but look how many presidents play the game of golf and enjoy the game of golf. It's a it's a game that, and you know, and, and I do think it's a game that sometimes gets a bad rap where people want to pre- want to project golf as a game for the elitists. You look at this country today. We have whatever, depending what you look at, we have 25, 26 million golfers. We've grown the game in the junior golf ranks in the last five years. Five to 600,000 more young boys and girls are playing the game today than five or six years ago. That's a great sign. Outpacing about every other sport. So why, why are they saying, though, that it's in decline? And so, so when you hear that and you got more people playing, why are we saying it's in decline? There's a couple things. When you say the game's in decline, there's no doubt that the game peaked in the late 90s, uh, the <laughs> Tiger Woods era. We were growing fastly. We had golf courses being built. And a lot of golf courses were built, you know, the business I'm in, we build them for real estate. We build them to sell homes and housing. So a lot of golf courses weren't necessarily built because of supply and demand of that golf course. The courses might lose millions of dollars, but when you're selling tens of millions of dollars of homes, it's a marketing expense. So there's no doubt that the peak number of golfers who play the game, the National Golf Foundation, who just came out with their new report this year, which had a lot of positive signs. But if you look at that report, we did kind of peak out there. In, in the last seven years, we've had course closings. Well, a lot of those closings were real estate driven. Yeah, I said that earlier. I mean, like I said, they're in the most prime real estate areas and cities started growing up around them. Of course, they're going to be usurped. Yeah. They, they, they weren't, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. So when you say, why are they saying it's down? There's no doubt. I don't want to. I don't want to get into the fake press thing, you know. Say mm-hmm. it's fake press, but no numbers have been down. But we are coming back. We've actually seen an increase in the rounds of golf the last two years. We've seen an increase in the serious golf or the core golfers. We've seen an increase in junior golf. So yeah, we see a lot of great economic indicators and just people taking up the game. And again, 
you still got 25, depending what you look at, which set of numbers, somewhere in the 25 million range, give or take a million people that play this great game. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people and, and people who are going to still be playing it, and quite frankly, till they die. Yeah, and I, and I think we're about to string together a little run of some really positive numbers. We went through the downturn. We had the late 90s. We've had the, the stock market challenges. We had uh, 9-11. Mm-hmm. And it, as you look into uh, the last, uh, as we got through the recession, 08 and 09, we started seeing courses closing. We saw the number of rounds dropping. We didn't see the growth in junior golf. But the last two years, we're starting to see those numbers go up again. And yeah, there are maybe, I don't know, 1,500 golf courses or facilities that have been closed, like we said, a lot of them driven by real estate. What's going to happen is the other courses can get healthier as we grow the game and get more people playing the game. And that helps the business side of it. But I do think we're going to continue to see growth in junior golf, and we're going to continue to see the overall numbers of people what I call the core golfer, people who enjoy this game and love this game. And I think we're going to see some positive numbers go more than just the next two, uh, excuse me, as we've seen the last two years as we move forward in 2017. Well, we're talking money here, so let me take a quick break and talk about Liberty Tax Service. They're at the top of the financial services category on Entrepreneurs Franchise 500. Liberty is the top tax preparation firm with more than 4,000 offices across North America and a great friend here on All Business. Love those guys. In fact, I'm going to be out at their annual convention this year filming a television show. Look for that. So if you're looking for tax preparation advice or new business opportunities, check them out at libertytax.com. Hey, they're a great seasonal, uh, seasonal franchise opportunity as well because if you're looking to pick up something part-time you know look at a, at a part-time franchise kind of, uh, kind of kind of a deal it's kind of kind of neat so uh, we're talking money let's talk technology what I every time I turn around there's a new club thank goodness um, because it helps me because I'm so bad um, but the fact that there's lots of new technology what's some of the new technology that you see coming down that's going to be helping golfers well I think one of the biggest booms that that has uh, helped golfers in the last 10 years is the flight uh, flight scope track band equipment that monitors ball flight spin ratio of the golf ball and that particular equipment allows pga professionals to fit their students much better for golf clubs and so that technology you see it on the tour now you know, it's interesting. If you go to the older golfers, they might not have been as interested in it. But I would say in the last 10 years, it's become kind of a a necessary tool for the f- professional who fits their members or uh, someone who has a store that's going to fit people for, the, for golf clubs. And to fit someone for golf clubs, the best thing to do is to be out on a driving range where you can see the ball flight. Although now we have enough simulators and things of that nature yeah. where you can on on a uh, computer see what the ball flight would have been produced by the swing you made but this type of equipment is greatly enhancing club fitting in the last 10 years so that's that's one of the big things also when you look at it you know there's a lot of uh different uh, new technology that's helping for example game golf where you can put a device on each of your clubs and every time you hit a shot it can record every shot you hit how far the ball carried how far you hit each club. You know, so there's a lot of ways to use technology. You know, the apps that we have these days, just from a standpoint of knowing every golf course, every inch of the golf course, and 
and uh, from a standpoint of knowing exactly the yardage and how far you are to the hole. So technology is playing a huge part in the growth of the game, especially for young people. Because we live in a world today where, you know, the millennials, they embrace technology. It's, it's who they are every day of their life. Maybe not for you or me. You know, I'm 56 years old. Uh, I can remember when I first started playing golf, uh, the only way you knew how far you were to the, to the flag was uh, you had a yardage book <laughs> yeah. or you walked it off. I mean, back then, yeah. when I first started playing, we didn't even see a lot of golf courses that had numbers on the sprinkler heads. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I remember, in fact, I remember uh, as a young assistant professional in Houston, Texas, the, the infamous Jackie Burke, who's still around, I think at 93 years old, Champions Golf Club, and a good friend of mine was an assistant pro there. He became the head pro at Champions for many years, Tad Weeks. And, you know, he almost felt like having – the yardages on the heads, he told us, was almost like cheating. Yeah. That part of your knowing how far to hit it is between you and your caddy. Yeah. So you look at the advances the game has made in technology, and I think for the millennials, it's a secret to us getting more millennials to play the game. How do we continue to integrate technology into the game of golf? So this week I played in, in Tucson, which you can, you can imagine I lost three balls. And I lost three balls. How can I lose three balls? It's a desert. There's nothing there. You should be able to see it. When am I going to have a ball that's going to be like uh, tracking on it so I know exactly where it's at? I can look at it on my phone. Well, if you look if you look at Top Golf, they've got a microchip in those balls, right? There's something where they track that golf ball. So the yeah. technology's there. I mean, whether or not the cost ratio of putting a putting that in every golf ball will be effective, I, I'm not up to speed on that. But I think there'll be a point in time where, yeah, you'll buy a dozen golf balls and uh, you'll be able to track them and find them uh, in some way, shape, or form through a GPS system or some kind of tracking device. Of course, right now, we see that technology being used in the top golf facilities where you go out, hit golf balls to the target, and yeah. it records how close you are to hitting it in this scoring zone or that scoring zone. I'm sure you've been to a top golf and are familiar with them. I have. In fact, my, my good buddy Eric uh, is the chairman of the company. Ken May used to be over at uh, Kinko's as the CEO and know those guys very well. Those guys are just exploding. Oh, they're killing it. And, you know, the Top Golf thing, I get asked all the time, do you think Top Golf will help grow the game? Well, I say this. You know, some people are like, well, that's not really golf. The golf purist. Uh, right. Uh, Nothing bad comes from finding a way to put a golf club in someone's hand that's never had a golf club in their hand before. That's the first thing I'll say. Right. That's a good thing. Number two, we don't even have close to the data to determine if Top Golf really grew the game. But I think, I think 10, 20 years down the road, we will have some data to show that Top Golf did help grow the game. Uh, it's a different type of golf. I mean, you know, it's it's very social. You see people going to a top golf facility, never hit a golf ball in their life, like going to the bowling alley in the old days. Yeah. Yep. So let's have a birthday party at the bowling alley. Well, people do that at Top Golf. So now, Top Golf also is very much about food and beverage and an experience. Yeah. And it's fun. And let's talk about that little word, fun. One of the keys to growing this great game is, and we talk about it every day in the PGA. We have got to continue to make the game of golf more fun for everyone, whether that's the 40-year-old adult who's picking up the game, whether it's the 8-year-old youth who's playing the golf for the first time, or maybe they're participating in our junior, our junior league golf uh, program, which is 
just been unbelievably successful all over this land. We had almost 40,000 youngsters this year participate. Whatever it is, fun is a key. Always is. Let me ask you a question. We'd speak about technology. We got a couple more minutes here. There's been a lot of controversy from time to time when you're watching some of these tournaments. And then all of a sudden, someone calls in, like I think it happened here recently with an LPGA, calls in, said they saw something on television, and then days later, they have to roll it back and give the win to someone else because of what some golfer saw while he was he or she was watching on TV. Is that the right thing to be doing? Well, let's talk about a couple things. One, we don't have any record, I think, of anyone actually taking the trophy and the check away. What happened, mm-hmm. which brought this to light, was the, was the Lexi rule from a few mm-hmm. weeks ago when she was out here. Uh, Lexi Thompson was out here at the ANA in the desert out at Mission Hills in Rancho Mirage, about 20 minutes from where I live. And so a viewer called in, and they made a ruling on Sunday that adjusted her Saturday score. Uh, okay. Since then, the United States Golf Association, in conjunction with the RNA, and they're working more collaboratively than ever, working towards a unification of the rules of golf. You know, the USGA writes the rules for the game for the United States and in this part of the world, and the RNA does it for across the pond and many other areas of the world. So those two groups have decided to try to work together to unify the rules of golf. Now, when that happened, we happened to be at Augusta the next week. And yep. I can tell you there were several meetings, I was included in some, where USGA officials, PGA Tour officials, the LPGA Tour officials, along with the USGA, powwowed to discuss what needed to be done to address this situation because there's no doubt a lot of people were upset with the outcome that came out of this. Now, what was decided was, and, they, and it's a new rule, and I can't quote the whole rule off the top of my head, but basically naked eye rule. One of the things they're saying now, if you can't see it with the naked eye, for example, I can't remember who it was, but she was playing uh, in a playoff. And I want to say it was the U.S. Women's Open last year. It might have been Anna Nordquist. I cannot remember exactly who. And she took the club back and actually barely grazed the sand. She couldn't feel it. She couldn't see it. But on high-definition television, you could see seven or eight grains of sand move. And so... That, for example, could never be seen with the naked eye, and that penalty would not be given to her. The question for some people is, should you allow a call-in altogether at all? I mean, that's like, that's like grabbing a guy out of the stands, you know, at, at a Knicks game who's had seven beers, you know, and then saying he's got a, he, he, he or she should have a, a say in, in what's going on on the court or watching a replay and then seeing something like that, and then saying, it, see, I told you so, and then change the outcome. Well, I think the, diff- the difference in golf compared to a lot of sports is golf's a game where we do call the rules on ourselves. It is a game of integrity. I can't remember ever watching a football game where a lineman, as, as I always say, if Emmett Smith in the old days for the Cowboys, <laughs> Emmett Smith went behind Larry Little or whatever where the guy was yeah. that was a big offensive lineman and scored a touchdown, that lineman never went up to the rep and said, take the, take the score off the board. I was holding the guy. Yeah. And, you know, it's just not done. So in golf, the rules of golf say with whatever means that you have at your disposal to make that ruling. Mm-hmm. So the rules of golf clearly state 
There's not limited to any particular one person or one rules official or the even the rules committee of that particular tournament. Now, those rules were written at a time when we probably didn't realize or think about the fact that we have, you know, 100 million people at home watching on television, high definition TV either. So there is currently a task force or a a group taking this a step further. And I know they've already had their first meeting. Carrie Haig, who's our chief championship officer for the PGA of America, I think they had a conference call last week. He sent me a note. And so representatives from the USGA, the PGA Tour, the LPGA, us, the PGA of America, the RNA, they are actually discussing what you're bringing up at this time as to what else should be changed for the future. And I applaud the United States Golf Association and the RNA for acting as quickly as they did on this one. I mean, for them to act as quickly as they did is very unusual. You know, the, to, to get two large associations together and make a rules change as quick as they did this time, uh, I applaud them, and it's the right thing. And taking this group further to have this task force, so to speak, take a look at it further to determine exactly what should be done uh, is a step for the game in the right direction. You know, I, I think so, too, and I, they are to be applauded. I, my, my, my belief is, is that the, most golfers play as though everyone's watching anyway, which means in their true core of who they are, they don't cheat, they don't kick the ball over, they don't do those things when you're at that level, certainly. Um, and if they do it, it's by accident. And usually when they do it, they, they correct themselves, they take it, that's, that's the game. And if they don't live up to that and someone catches them at it, then they should pay their, the consequences of that action. But, uh, you know, I love that if it's not seen by the naked eye, you know, I, I think that's probably a good way of doing it. But it, I just, every, I think it's opened up some good debate. And it's, it's great that the associations, um, you know, you're taking it on head on, which has been great. Hey, Paul, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and get get a little get get a little bit more educated on what's going on and what's happening with with PGA America. Well, it was my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity, and anytime I could be of any help, uh, please don't hesitate to give me a call. And uh, you know, let's just remember keep uh, keep having fun and going out and hitting the ball. That's what counts. <laughs> there you go. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us right here on All Business. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Dunkin' Donuts. At the end of every interview, I like to talk about what I learned, and there's a lot. I thought, first of all, innovate or die. You know, you got to do that. Golf, look at the changes. Custom grips, custom this, watch videos, tracking devices, all the stuff. You talk about wow, wow, wow. I used to think they'd come up with new balls all the time, but I thought that was very good. And I also like the basics. Paul talked about keeping it fun. At the core of what they have to do, the PGA America is talking about how they get fans involved and people engaged by making it relevant. And they're using technology to do that, but really at the core of everything, it's fun. And then I love the last but not least about the pros getting caught or getting seen to be caught by doing something wrong, which was just an accident. But they got to hold yourself to a very high standard, even if others aren't watching. That's a great lesson right here on All Business. And another great lesson, 
you know, a lesson is to help other people know more about the show. So could you do me a favor? Go up and rate it on iTunes or just send a link to everyone so they can find us right here on C-Suite Radio. And this is Jeffrey Hazlett on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Welcome to C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.